In this episode, I'm joined by a fantastic guest, and we are talking about newer and lesser-known monuments and memorials in Washington, D.C. Three and a half years ago, I published episode one of this podcast, and in that episode, talked about several monuments that were either planned or under construction. And now that it's 2022, they're open. So I thought it was about time to do another episode about the monuments, and specifically cover some of these newer additions. Plus, I wanted to talk about a few that aren't new in the past few years, per se, but I think are worth talking about. When people come to Washington, D.C., they either take a tour of the monuments, like a Tripax D.C. tour, or they wander around and look at them on their own. In either case, you typically only see the most famous monuments, Lincoln, Jefferson, the World War II Memorial. But what a lot of people don't realize is that there are other monuments in D.C. than just the famous ones. Yes, the World War II Memorial is a monument to World War II, but on the other side of town, there's another monument related to the war that almost no one ever sees. And sure, Thomas Jefferson is a very important founding father, but he wasn't the only one. Literally, in the shadow of his monument is another for a founding father that almost no one knows about. So anyway, I hope this episode gives you some inspiration to seek out the sites that aren't just the famous or most popular ones. Most of them don't even require a special trip. They're right there, among all the other major sites. And with that said, let's get started. Welcome to the Trip Hacks DC podcast. Discover the best tips, tricks, and travel hacks for your visit to the nation's capital. And now, here's Rob and this episode's special guest. Hello, and thank you for tuning in. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or see the show notes from this episode, you can do that over at triphexdc.com slash podcast. Today, I am joined by Carolyn Moraskin, a fellow tour guide and owner of DC Design Tours. If her voice sounds familiar, it's because she joined me for episode one, the life cycle of DC's monuments and memorials, and episode nine, a deep dive on America's Main Street, Pennsylvania Avenue. So, Carolyn, welcome back to the podcast. It's good to be back. Thank you. I am excited to talk about lesser-known and newer memorials in Washington, D.C., because monuments and memorials are my bread and butter. I know you have monuments and memorials tours as well. And we first talked about these in 2018, three and a half years ago. And when we were recording that episode, there were a few places where we said, oh, this one's under construction or this one's in the planning, and it doesn't yet exist. And now it's 2022, and it exists. Time is no longer linear. So we're going to run through some of the new additions, as well as some lesser-known memorials that I think we want people to know about, because people often say things like, wouldn't it be nice if we had this? And in many cases, we already have it. So let's jump into it. I want to start with one that I think most people are at least aware of or aware that it opened, because it did have a pretty big opening ceremony, and that is the Dwight D. Eisenhower Memorial. Yeah, that one opened in 2020. It's our newest presidential memorial. It's uh, just south of the Air and Space Museum on a four-acre park. And I'm sure most people know Eisenhower was both president of the United States and the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force during World War II. Um, This was a a controversial design. It was a long process, but it's another addition to the National Mall now. We have monuments to presidents. We have one to Thomas Jefferson, Abe Lincoln, George Washington, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And for many years, people asked, hey, who do you think the next president to get a monument is going to be? And I don't think I would have necessarily guessed Dwight Eisenhower. He definitely was a very popular president. He was a very popular figure. 
with regard to his work in World War II and as president. One thing I do often say is that this one is a little different because it's not on that monuments tour route. It's not in that monumental core. Like you said, it's on kind of the other side of town over by the Air and Space Museum. And one thing that I think is interesting, can comment on this as an architect, it was designed by a very famous architect. But I think most people, if they're not really into architecture, would have no clue that this person designed it. Yeah, it's um, so it's not. Yeah, it's not quite on the mall. It's on the other side of the Smithsonian Museum of the Air and Space Museum. It's designed by an architect named Frank Gehry, who's one of the most famous contemporary architects in the world. And it was technically done by contest. A lot of our famous monuments and memorials, a lot of our buildings, I think we talked about this long ago on the previous episodes, they're designed by competition. So that goes all the way back to the Capitol and the White House. Uh, This one was actually an invitation-only design contest, which is a bit unusual. So there were 50 different firms that were invited. Some people actually think that the design contest was rigged. And Gary is more famously known for Disney Hall in Los Angeles or the Guggenheim in Bilbao in Spain. He has definitely has an aesthetic, uh, which are these big sort of metal curved panels. So this memorial, yeah, you wouldn't know it's a Gary unless you're looking at it or unless you read about it rather. I think of the Disney Concert Hall and the Guggenheim. Those are the two that my mind goes to when I hear Gary, but he has many buildings and many of them are, I don't want to say copies of those two buildings, but they are very similar in design. And so when I hear this building was designed by Frank Gehry. I think, oh, it's going to be one of those, right? And when I saw the Eisenhower Memorial for the first time, I was like, oh, this is not at all like that. So that might be good or it might be not so good. I don't know what your expectation is necessarily. I think people might be surprised to find out that he was actually the one who did it. Well, a lot of it is because the design was super pared down. So there were many, many iterations of the Gary design. And there was sort of a struggle between the family and the memorial sort of organization. The Eisenhower family originally didn't even want a physical memorial. They wanted what they called a living memorial, like an organization or a scholarship or a program. But eventually that was rejected uh, by the Eisenhower Memorial Commission because it was redundant with other existing organizations. So originally Gary's design was much more elaborate. There's a big metal uh, scrim. It's like a big sort of tapestry, woven tapestry. And originally there were meant to be three of them that would sort of surround the memorial. That got scaled back. There were other big kind of overhead elements that got scaled back because people thought the memorial would be too sort of obscured and enclosed or it would obscure views to the Capitol building. So it might not look very Gary because he had to change it over 25 times and actually almost quit over the project. I did not know that it changed that many times. It doesn't surprise me that he almost quit over the project. I think that's something that if if I was a designer and I was being required to make all these changes, I might get frustrated too and might not want to deal with it anymore. But it's interesting because that big tapestry, it's at first glance, to me, it doesn't really look like anything. And then if you go on a tour or you find a park ranger or you read the brochure, you see that it's supposed to represent the Normandy coastline. So this is in reference to Eisenhower's role in World War II. And I didn't really realize that at first, but it is interesting. And it's actually quite quite nice when it's lit up after dark. Yeah, definitely nighttime is the best time to see this memorial. So the tapestry is 450 feet long. It's made of stainless steel. And it, it is this abstract sketch of the Normandy coastline in peacetime. So it's not supposed to depict, you know, D-Day or anything like that. Originally, the design for that was actually to be a Kansas scene, because of course, Eisenhower is famously from Kansas. Uh, that eventually got changed to Normandy. And it does look mostly like scribbles. Like you said, you wouldn't know what it's depicting unless you read it or someone tells it. Uh, 
God tells it to you. And I think that um, that's one of the big criticisms of the memorial is that it's a little bit too abstract. At least that part of it is a little too abstract. Well, I don't know if I agree with that because I think a lot of the monuments have are packed with hidden symbolism. And I think that's one of the things that makes them so special is that when you go on a monuments tour and your tour guide tells you about all the symbolism packed into the Vietnam Memorial, for example, you kind of feel like you're now part of a club like, oh, the people wandering around just looking at this, they have no idea all this hidden symbolism in there. But things like that, I think, are really cool and really interesting. Well, I agree. And we have a lot of secrets on the memorials that we love to share. But this isn't a hidden gem. This is like the centerpiece of the memorial, you know, 450 feet long, raised up into the sky. So if anything's going to tell a clear story, I would think to argue back that this would tell a clear story because it's not just a little element or a secret. It's a big main focal point of the design. But that's just me. That's a good point. I kind of think of the design being split into the eastern side and the western side. And so as you said earlier, one side is depicting Eisenhower as a military leader, the other side depicting Eisenhower as a president. And the statues that are in there, as well as some of the quotes that are in there, you can really get a sense of that as you're looking at it. So to me, that's kind of the centerpiece of the memorial. It's interesting that you consider that big tapestry to be like the big... uh, focal point of it well it it spans the whole you know the whole length of the memorial and it's like you said at night it's all lit up i do like the two sides there are some interesting symbols between the military side and the president's side so the military side it shows eisenhower with the 101st airborne who are the paratroopers right that came in during d-day and it's based off of a really famous photo from that day from june 5th the day before d-day where um eisenhower famously says full victory nothing else so he's sort of in that pose right with his fist clenched and if you know a little bit about world war ii right if you're in that club then that's a position that you'll sort of recognize And then on the presidency side, it shows him with both civilian and military advisors, and that's supposed to be a reference to his contributions with World War II, of course, but the Korean War as president, but also social programs like raising the minimum wage, expanding social services, establishing the Department of Health. So there are, you know, some subtle ways the story is being told that are not as subtle as the abstract scribbly tapestry. And there's one more statue in the memorial. And this is a statue of Eisenhower as a boy, as a child. And this is different. None of the other monuments to presidents feature the person as a child. You don't go to the Lincoln Memorial and see boyhood Lincoln or anything like that. And so I think some people find this weird uh, or different. It's definitely different. I don't know if I would say it's weird. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this boyhood statue of Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, the boyhood statue was one of the most controversial elements of the memorial because originally it was designed to be sort of front and center right in the middle of everything. And then over the course of all these design iterations and conversations with the family, it was moved off to the side. So now he's sort of in a corner looking toward his future. And it's supposed to represent him as this sort of barefoot, he's not actually barefoot, but barefoot Kansas kid, you know, sort of rural kid. And uh, behind it is a quote from his famous Abilene, Kansas homecoming speech, where he basically says, you know, my most thing I'm most proud of is being from Kansas. So um, this portion of the memorial was sort of more supported by the family. So perhaps it's a more personal connection to the president, not just showing like a Lincoln or a Washington as this sort of almost deified character, but giving the president some humanity. It, I think the closest comparison to that is the statue of FDR in a wheelchair. 
at the FDR Memorial, which wasn't originally included in the design, right? That was added on. The design, the memorial opened in 1997. That was added in 2001 um, because it was a real depiction of FDR in his wheelchair, which some people advocated should not have been included because FDR worked so hard in his own life and to hide his disability. So that's that other sort of element of realism, like making them human, that is, like you said, pretty unique among memorials. And I suppose Eisenhower and FDR are both people who didn't actually want monuments to themselves, or at least giant monuments like these to themselves. So it winds up going back to the family because once the president's gone, he can't say, hey, don't build this. I don't want this. It's up to the family to make those wishes known. Yeah, that's a good point. Eisenhower was quoted to say when when his family asked him, you know, what he wanted for his memorial, uh, just don't put me on a horse. And then, of course, FDR is the only president who actually got to design his own memorial, which is the real FDR memorial, which is just a little block of stone with his name on it at the National Archives, which is exactly what he wanted. Okay, now, practically speaking, the Eisenhower Memorial opened in 2020, October 2020. So this opened after COVID. So if you haven't been to Washington, D.C. since the before times, this one will be new to you. This one is actually not included on Tripex DC Monuments Tour because it is, like I said, on kind of the other side of the National Mall. Is this included on your tour, any of your tours out of curiosity? No, none of my standard tours. I've just gone to it on a bunch of private tours. But yeah, it's kind of off the map, like you said. Yeah. So this is one that you're either going to have to sign up for a private tour and specifically request, or you'll have to kind of see it on your own. And I, I, as much as I don't typically recommend seeing the monuments on your own, this one's just one that you might just have to do that for. Okay, let's talk about another monument that opened post-COVID, and that is the National World War I Memorial. And this is one that I will often tell people, oh, yeah, the National World War I Memorial just opened in 2021. And they'll kind of give me a funny look and say, wait, what, 2021? The World War I Memorial? Because obviously the war ended over 100 years ago. So what's the deal with this? Why did it take so long? And why did it just open in 2021? Yeah, this is all, all the memorials have an element of controversy. This one is on our tour route on our Pennsylvania Avenue tour. So World War I ended in 1918, of course, and there actually is a World War I memorial in Washington, D.C. It's on the mall. It's a small sort of um, little rotunda, but it was built just for veterans of Washington, D.C. who served and died, 455 names inscribed on it in in World War One, It was funded by the city, not the federal government. And the whole concept of national war memorials really didn't come about until after the Vietnam War. So the Vietnam Wall, which was finished in 1982, that was the first national war memorial. So after Vietnam comes Korea and then World War II. And then um, in the mid-2000s, there was a push by the World War I Centennial Commission, right, coming up on 2018, 100 years after the war ended, to build a World War I memorial. But initially, their proposal was just to repurpose the D.C. one and rededicate it to all World War I veterans. And that stirred up quite a bit of controversy. Yeah, I know folks who live in D.C. take that we call it the District of Columbia World War Memorial, or DC War Memorial for short. People take a lot of pride in that because that is really the only thing on the National Mall that is for us and not for you, the listener, visiting from another state or another part of the country. And so people who live here, we had to take a lot of pride in that, and we didn't want to just make it the National War Memorial. I'm happy that that one stayed as it is. Like you said, this National World War One Memorial came with plenty of controversy. Um, now, as far as... Where it's located, it is 
near the White House. It's actually right across from the Willard Hotel on Pennsylvania Avenue. If you're staying at the Willard, you can kind of stumble out the front door and you'll be in the National World War I Memorial. And it opened in 2021. I feel like this opened with almost no fanfare. Like it kind of just opened in the middle of the night and one day it was still under construction and the next day it was like it was just open. Yeah, it's because of COVID. You know, there was a virtual dedication. Biden spoke at it, but, you know, virtual activities are never as well publicized. And it's not even really done. So there's this last piece called A Soldier's Journey, which is the 60-foot long, 12-foot high bronze relief with 38 figures showing the sort of evolution of a private citizen going to war and then coming home. It's still under construction. So right now it's just a sort of a poster of what that will be, and that's not supposed to be done until 2024. Um, One of the reasons that the memorial is not on the mall is because of a 2003 law that basically banned all future memorials on the National Mall. Basically, they declared the mall is full. So future memorials need other places to go. And that's why one of the reasons they decided to repurpose a park that was already there called Pershing Park. And that makes sense because, of course, General Pershing was general of World War I. Um, that park was built in the 1970s, actually in 1981, um, as they were sort of trying to restore Pennsylvania Avenue, which we talked about on episode nine. So I guess I'm curious, if we already had a Pershing Park named after Pershing, who a military history buff recently told me was the only six-star general in the military, which I believe is an unofficial uh, ranking, but <laughs> don't, don't know all the details on that. So I guess the question is, if we already had a park for Pershing, couldn't that have just served as the National Memorial? Why did we have to build an entirely new National Memorial? Because, you know, people get itchy and they want to they build stuff. Well, it was – and it was an underused park, Pershing Park. So it has a statue of Pershing. It has some maps around it. But it had really fallen into disrepair. Initially, when it opened in 81, it was designed by – Um, a man named Paul Friedberg, who also did Yards Park. And it had a pool and an ice rink, you know, be uh, just a decorative pool and then convert to an ice rink. It had concessions. And it was a really nice civic space. But the park really declined um, in the 1990s and up through recently because of this big fight sort of between the National Park Service and the um, contracting company that they contract with to uh, maintain the parks, and in this case, to maintain the concessions and the ice skating rink. So there was this big fight about contracting that guests, this company, Guest Services, was having uh, an exclusive contract, even though it should be publicly bid. And by 2012, basically, the fountain, the ice rink, the concession stand, everything was closed. So this park really becomes an eyesore, ultimately. And it's right across the street, like you said, from the Willard. So it was, I think, a creative solution to repurpose it because it really was not serving a very good purpose by, you know, the mid-2000s. I think what's interesting to me about the design is that it's very heavy on water. And my understanding, and maybe I was always completely wrong about this, is that the National Park Service and other folks who oversee monuments, memorials, they had kind of fallen out of love with using water in memorials because plumbing is very expensive and difficult to maintain. And the FDR memorial, which is also very heavy on water, the water's often turned off or broken or the plumbing doesn't work. So when the Eisenhower Memorial opened, it had no water. And I said, exactly as I thought it was supposed to be. And then this National World War I Memorial opened and it's just full of water. And I thought, hmm, this is interesting. I I wonder how that happened. That is a good observation. Yeah, FDR, we're always lamenting it, especially during cherry blossom season. The fountains rarely work. When you found it, this few months ago, the water was on, but it was frozen. So I do not blame the National Park Service from shying away from water. The water elements at World War One are pretty, they're present, but it's a scrim. So it's basically just like less than a 
you know, quarter inch, just a tiny layer of water, maybe that's a little easier to maintain. Yeah. So when I say it's heavy on water, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of presence of water, but it's not like full-blown waterfalls. Right. Like at FDR. FDR. Memorial. Okay. That's interesting. Now let's move on to the other one that opened post-COVID. So again, if you came to Washington DC in the before times, you're not going to have seen this before. And that is the Native American Veterans Memorial. Yep. This one is also on our tour. We do a tour about the architecture and the design of the Smithsonian Museum. So this one is tacked on to the Museum of the American Indian. It opened in 2020 and it was officially dedicated. It actually will have an official dedication this Veterans Day, November 2022. Um, It's also designed by contest. The winner was called Warrior Circle of Honor, and it's dedicated to all of the Native Americans who have served in war. And Native Americans have served in every American conflict going all the way back to the American Revolution. So it's long deserved. And this one is a little bit different because it's right outside the museum. It's right outside the Smithsonian American Indian Museum. And so it's not on the National Mall Monument Core part of uh, town. And, and really, it's kind of like if you're going to the museum, this is one part of the museum experience. You'll go inside, you'll see the exhibits in there, and then you'll come outside and see the monument out there. I think the design is really interesting. It's, it's basically, to me, with the untrained architect's eye, just like a giant ring, and you kind of go around the ring, and you can look at it through different angles. You can see the Capitol in the background. You can see the museum in the background. What do you think about the design? Do you like it? Yeah, I like it too. I think you described it perfectly. It is a giant stainless steel circle. It's on a carved stone drum with water cascading down the side. And then around it, there are four lances, like sort of... Um, like spears, and they have um, what are called prayer ties tied into them. So they're different colors and symbols for different Native American tribes. And then what I didn't know until recently is there's actually a place in the middle of the circle where they can light fires for ceremonial occasions. But I do. I think it's a really graceful, simple, classic kind of design. It was designed also by contest. The winner was um, a gentleman who's uh, from the Cheyenne and Arapaho, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Oklahoma tribes. And he's also a Vietnam veteran. So there's, you know, obviously really good connections there. Yeah, that's great. So like I said, if you are going to the museum, definitely go see the inside exhibits and then eat lunch there. It's a good place for, for lunch and then come outside and see this on your way to your next thing. I have to say the thing I like best about it is the view that it affords back to the museum. So around, you know, the landscape of the museum, they have all these different four different um, natural habitats. So they have a hardwood forest and a freshwater wetland. And this one is set kind of in between them. And you used to not be able to get the vantage point of the museum because the entrance of the American Indian Museum is not oriented toward the mall like all the others are. It's oriented east Um, you know, towards the sun. So you used to not really be able to appreciate fully that gorgeous entrance. And now you can looking through the circle. That's cool. I did not know that. But now I've gone over there a few times. And it's it's one where when I go, there's not a lot of other people around, which on the one hand is kind of disappointing, because it's one that you'd think, wow, this it would be great if lots of people could see this. On the other hand, it's not a big memorial. So if there were really big crowds, like you can sometimes get it like the Lincoln Memorial, it would be hard to, to navigate it and hard to enjoy it. So pros and cons, of course. Okay, now this next one is an interesting case where it's not a new memorial. We're taking an existing memorial and we're changing it, the Korean War Memorial, of course. Now, if you've come on tour with me or surely with you in the last year and a half, we've gone to the Korean War Memorial and I've had to apologize for it being under construction and not being at its full glory and the lights aren't working yet. And so it's going to reopen in summer 2022, but they are making some important additions and changes to the Korean War Memorial. So can you explain what they're doing over there? So there's two sides to this 
um, construction project, they're adding things and they're also renovating things. So what they're adding is called the Wall of Remembrance. It's kind of similar to the Vietnam Wall, much smaller, of course, but it's going to list the 36,574 American servicemen and the 7,200 what they call Katsuma, which is Korean attached to U.S. Army. So these would have been Korean service members who are helping the armed forces, American armed forces. Um, They're adding all of these names to the memorial, people who are missing in action or killed in action. Um, Now, what's not similar about this compared to Vietnam is that it's including the names of non-Americans. This is the first national memorial to include non-Americans on the wall. The names will be organized by branch and rank, and then it'll indicate who's KIA and MIA. And one interesting thing I learned recently is that one in five people who died in Korea are still MIA. So if we compare it to Vietnam, you know, Vietnam was 16 years long, and we lost about 58,000. Korea was only three years long. So it's going to it's def- definitely going to pack a punch. They're also adding two new pedestrian paths and then they're replacing um, some carved names with stainless steel so it's a little bit more durable. Um the funniest thing they're doing, they removed all the beehives that had been nesting in the statues, you know, the nooks and crannies of the statues. So they cleaned and refinished the stainless steel statues. And like you said, it's supposed to be done on the date of the armistice, um July 27th. You know, Armistice was 1953. This is supposed to be done in 2022. I'll be surprised. Yeah, I know on the official signage at the memorial, it just says generically summer 2022, (laughs) which I often tell people, hey, it's still technically summer on September 19th. So (laughs) um, it'll be done when it's done. I at first wasn't thrilled when I heard about the changes. I think tour guides, we fall in love with the memorials as they are. And the Vietnam Memorial is special for its reasons, and the Korean War Memorial is special for its reasons, and they're different. They're different memorials. The Vietnam Memorial obviously has the 58,000 names of Americans killed and missing in action, and the Korean Memorial didn't. So when I heard that they were adding names, I kind of groaned, and I thought, oh, they're just making it like the Vietnam Memorial because so many people have come here over the last 26 years and complained that there's no names. But then when I started looking at the designs and digging into the reasons why they're doing it, I changed my mind. I think, okay, this is probably a good thing, and I'm going to withhold any further judgment until it opens and I start going there. I had exactly the same thought trajectory. I also thought they shouldn't you know, make it too similar to Vietnam and that it was its own thing. But... If it's important to the families of Korean veterans, and it seems to be, then, you know, who are we to judge? So that one is currently, at the time of recording, in its final stages of renovation. So, as we said, summer 2022, whatever date that winds up being, you can come back. And if you've come in the last year and a half and saw it under construction, you'll just have to come back and see it again once it's done. Okay, now this next one is a little different, and I wanted to add it to this episode because it's the kind of memorial that people will often say, oh, wouldn't it be great if we had this thing? And in this case, it's wouldn't it be great if we had a memorial to all the veterans who were disabled in the line of action? And we actually have that exact thing in Washington, D.C. It's a national memorial, but it's a bit sad because it's one that not a lot of people go to and not a lot of people even know exists. It's called the Americans Disabled for Life Memorial. It is near the U.S. Botanic Gardens, near the Capitol. So it's not like it's way off in some corner of the city that, you know, is hard to get to or anything like that. It's just that not a lot of people go over there for whatever reason. So I understand this one had a a bit of an interesting backstory. 
Yes. So I think this memorial has a lot going on in the design, but the siting, like you said, is just unfortunate. It's back behind, sort of feels like backstage Washington, D.C., behind the Botanical Garden. It's right at the entrance to a highway. It's sort of mixed in with these big, in my opinion, ugly federal office buildings, but it's a beautiful design and there's a lot of story being told. It's also the first national memorial dedicated to disabled people and also the first memorial dedicated to all branches and all conflicts. Um, it was also a design contest. This one was as well invitation only. But one of the the big challenges, well, two big challenges, one is, as we talked about, no more memorials were allowed to be built on the mall. And the second is something called the U.S. Commemorative Works Act, which requires that any memorial only be built after the 25th anniversary of the death of the last surviving member of that group. So they had to jump through a lot of hoops to get this memorial approved. And fundraising was always a challenge. In fact, they actually brought on uh, the actor Gary Sinise, who played Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump as their sort of actor uh, sponsor, I suppose. And ultimately, the design was done by a landscape architect named Michael Ferguson, who also designed parts of the cathedral grounds, places at Mount Vernon, Monticello, parts of the wharf. So he's a pretty well-known, you know, established D.C. area landscape architect, but it still took a really, really long time to raise the money for this memorial. Yeah, so if you have watched the National Memorial Day concert on PBS, uh, Gary Sinise is always involved in that, and he's a big advocate for veterans as a result of playing Lieutenant Dan and Forrest Gump all those years ago. So it's very fascinating how someone who is an actor but who played this role that had such a big impact on his, his life, but he's been a big advocate for veterans all these years. But yeah, this one, uh, I wish more people would go see, and I wish I would go see more often, to be honest. But like you said, just due to the nature of the location, kind of behind the botanical gardens, kind of wedged in between a big, brutalist federal government building, it's one that... People aren't going to be walking past from one thing to the next, and so you kind of have to go out of your way to go to it. It is a bit sad that uh, it doesn't get more attention. Yeah, I agree. It does have some really neat elements. There's five basic elements. There's a fountain, a reflecting pool, what they call the wall of gratitude, uh, voices of veterans, and then a grove of trees. And there's just a lot of symbolism to it. Interestingly, this is actually the pared down version of the design. Just like all of these contests, you know, there's many iterations. So there's there's a lot going on. It's really telling a story in a way that even, you know, the Washington Monument is not, right? It's just a big white obelisk. You interpret it quickly and and move on. But this, you can spend a lot of time um, experiencing and looking at all the elements of the memorial. There's even um, etched glass panels that display the soldiers' individual stories. There's quotes from all different people of various background and various disabilities. Uh, The glass panels are actually made of the same glass that they used on the Apache helicopter on the windshields. There's also silhouettes of various disabled veterans. um, And they talk about in the memorial the sort of um, cycle of disabled veteran experience, which is the call of duty and the pride of service, the trauma of the injury, the healing, and then the renewal of purpose. So the symbolism of those four kind of components of the journey are all encapsulated in the memorial. And there's a ceremonial flame there as well, which people think of ceremonial flame, they think of JFK's burial site at Arlington Cemetery. Yeah, that's a good comparison. The flame is especially neat because it comes out of the water. You know, it looks like it shouldn't exist. I read that actually to keep people from messing with it, there are pressure sensors in the water that will cut the flow of natural gas as anything falls into the fountain or people try to climb in the fountain. 
Uh, the trees also have symbolism. So there's ginkgo trees and cypress trees. And ginkgo trees, you know, local Washingtonians know this, they turn this gorgeous yellow around Veterans Day. So it makes it even more beautiful, even more meaningful. And both of these types of trees, ginkgos and cypress, they're very resilient. So there's, you know, the symbolism behind including them. Yeah, most people are big cherry tree fanatics, but a very small number of people, they like the cherry trees, but they're really into the ginkgo trees. So if you know what we're talking about, that means you are definitely a true Washingtonian. DC insider. Now, the last couple of memorials I want to talk about, I, I put onto the list for the episode because in many ways, they complement bigger, more famous memorials, and they're not ones that a lot of people go to, but... If you want a really holistic view of the memorials or the history of the country, I think it's worth going to the famous ones on your tour or whenever and then also going to these additional ones because they give you a, a bigger picture of what's really happened. And the first one is the George Mason Memorial. Now, George Mason around here, around Washington, D.C., many people say, oh, there's a university called George Mason University in Virginia. He was a Virginian, and they might know him from that. Or if you're a big college basketball fan, every once in a while, George Mason University does something good in March Madness, and people hear about him from that. But other than that, most people have no clue who George Mason is. And when you go to his memorial, the sign right at the front, it says, George Mason, the forgotten founder. (laughs) And I think that kind of perfectly puts it. Nobody knows who he is. He's the forgotten founding father. Yeah, this is he's the forgotten founder, and this is the forgotten memorial. It's on the way to the Jefferson Memorial. So if you're walking around the Tidal Basin, usually you'll see the MLK Memorial. You'll see the Franklin Delano Roosevelt Memorial. Then you'll go to Jefferson. You'll totally skip George Mason. And I know your tour goes the opposite direction, so it's even harder to see that way. Um, But George Mason was a really important founding father. He's known as the father of the Bill of Rights. He also refused to sign the U.S. Constitution because it didn't lay out enough states' rights and also because it didn't address the question of slavery. And he called out that obvious hypocrisy of Jefferson's phrase, all men are created equal, while slavery, you know, still existed. But George Mason and Thomas Jefferson, they were very close friends. He wrote George Mason, the Virginia Declaration of Rights, which became the inspiration for Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. Um, The memorials, like you said, are positioned close to each other. That's intentional. And Mason uh, was also known for being um, handsome, and he actually had very large calves. And so the thing I really love about this memorial, he's in this kind of saucy pose with his legs crossed, and it's actually showing off his calves. Apparently, Jefferson was a little bit jealous about that. I've seen the statue many times, and now I'll never unsee what you just said. <laughs> I think this is an interesting one because its location is, I don't want to say literally because it's not literally like this, but it's so close to the Jefferson Memorial that you could say it's in the shadow of the Jefferson Memorial. And, you know, the Jefferson Memorial looks like the Pantheon and it's big and it's white and it's rising up into the sky. And so it does cast a shadow onto the things that are around it. And the Mason Memorial is close enough to it that you could say that he's being overshadowed by Thomas Jefferson. As he is in history. That Mason is overshadowed by Thomas Jefferson. And uh, the statue was designed by an artist who also did a statue of him at his namesake university. Okay, so now moving from the Tidal Basin across the National Mall over near Union Station is a memorial that not many people know about, not many people know exists. And to me, this one is a compliment to the World War II memorial and also to some degree to the FDR memorial because we do learn about World War II in the FDR memorial. And this one is called the Japanese-American Memorial to Patriotism During World War II. Yeah, quite a mouthful. This is, I think, the memorial with the longest name in D.C. And it's interesting we say a compliment to the memorial because it's really um, 
more of a, I don't know, an insult a or a contrast, right, especially to the FDR memorial. So this one centers around Executive Order 9066, which was issued by FDR, and that was the order that forced Japanese Americans into internment camps. So over 120,000 men, women, and children were displaced and then imprisoned and segregated in these camps over the course of the war, you know, post Pearl Harbor. Um, this memorial is fairly new. So this memorial is dedicated to those that were imprisoned in these camps, but also to the Japanese Americans who fought in World War II. Um, Japanese Americans were segregated in the war. So the two most famous are the 100th Infantry Battalion and the 442nd Regimental Combat Team. Their motto was go for broke. That's where that expression sort of was popularized. And over 10,000 Japanese Americans fought in the war. They volunteered in the war. Um, and that those two units, by the way, are the most highly decorated um, for the size and length of service in all of military history, not just World War II. This injustice really wasn't recognized until 1988 with the Civil Liberties Act, where ultimately Congress, the president, the government admitted the horror of internment camps and actually provided over $1.6 billion in reparations to families who had been put into the camps. Yeah. And when you go to the World War II Memorial on the National Mall, it's very rah-rah, the Allies won, victorious, we're great, we're awesome, and zero acknowledgement of this atrocity that happened. And so if you only went to the World War II Memorial or you only went to the FDR Memorial, you'd be missing an important part of the picture. I believe this is the only memorial, or at least the only national memorial, where we very specifically and explicitly acknowledge a wrongdoing. We typically don't do that kind of thing at a memorial like this. Yeah, there's a there's a quote from the president on it with almost those exact words. It's also um, was also designed by someone whose grandfather was imprisoned in Hawaii and actually died of a heart attack uh, because of their time in an internment camp. The design is beautiful. It's by Nina Akamu. The centerpiece are these two cranes. They're sort of parallel to each other. They have one wing up and one wing down, and they're struggling with barbed wire. And then they have over 800 names listing all of the Japanese Americans who died in World War II. They have the names of the 10 camps, and the walls are sort of slanted to evoke that feeling of confinement. And they actually put soil from the camps in the foundation of the memorial. And then there's five boulders in a reflecting pool, which represent the five generations of Japanese Americans living in the U.S. when this basically opened in 2000. And like you said, it is the only memorial with an explicit apology. Names on a memorial are very powerful. We know that from the Vietnam Memorial, which came quite a few years earlier. But the cranes with the barbed wire, those big birds with the barbed wire, that's really what's most striking to me. And also because they are up, they're high up in the air. And so when you walk in, they're really overpowering you, you know, up above you. And that's really quite an interesting experience for me. Uh, They were designed to actually appear above the wall. So as you're approaching the memorial, even if you don't know what it is, you can see the cranes kind of rising above the uh, enclosure. And one thing I didn't know about this, because I've never noticed it or done it, is that there's actually a bell that people can ring. Or maybe it's just always been out of order or out of service when I've gone. (laughs) But I've never actually rung this bell. But it is part of the design that they intended for visitors to ring this bell. Yeah, I've never seen it functioning. Um, But it is long, a long, flat sort of silver a cylinder that you can hit a hammer and it rings the bell. And it's supposed to be interactive, but I've never actually interacted with it. Okay, well, we've gone through quite a few 
newer and lesser-known monuments and memorials in Washington, D.C. So hopefully, if you're listening to this, if you're visiting Washington, D.C., you'll consider checking these out. You'll be spending enough time here that you'll have time to make your way around to these various sites and, and see them all. And definitely, it to me, it really helps round out your experience. You go on the Monuments Memorials Tour, definitely do that. It's great, but this really helps round things out. So, Carolyn, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, for doing the research, uh, especially the architecture um, research, which you know a lot about architecture, and I certainly do not. So thank you for (laughs) informing me and the audience on all these wonderful things. Now, you own DC Design Tour, so can you tell us a little bit about that? And also, where can folks go to follow along with what DC Design Tours is up to? Sure. Thank you for the opportunity, Rob. So DC Design Tours, it's dcdesigntours.com is our website. We do tours specializing in architecture, urban planning, and design. You do not have to have any background in architecture to enjoy them. As Rob said, you know, most people don't have that level of expertise. It's just a framework for our storytelling. We do tours all over the city. Uh, We do Georgetown and Embassy Row and Pennsylvania Avenue and Adams Morgan and 16th Street. So we try to get off the mall as well as on. And you can also follow us on social media. Our Instagram is a lot of fun, a lot of architecture and pretty buildings that's at dc design tours and we have a facebook page as well so hopefully i get to see some of our listeners in person sometime on a tour thanks for listening to the trip hacks dc podcast to see the show notes from today's episode get additional resources for planning your trip or to book a trip hacks dc guided tour visit triphacksdc.com